You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Word is good as well. So Hebrews, I'm going to begin in verse 14 and uh, read down through verse 10 of chapter 5. This is the, the core text that we're going to be in this morning here in a little bit. So let me begin. Chapter 4, verse 14 in Hebrews says this, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. And because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So this is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift. Thank you for the magnificent gift that we have today. To be able to be together, to hear from your word, to study your word, to have your word applied to our hearts and our minds and our lives. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be released into our midst uh, in an even greater measure over the next few moments as we dive deeply into what it means for your son Jesus to not only be our eternal king, but to also be our high priest. I pray, God, that you would draw near to us as we seek to draw near to you. God, we love you. And everybody said, amen, amen. You may be seated. No secret that the Christmas season is here, right? A week from today, I'm going to wake up and celebrate the birth of our Savior, Jesus. Jesus, right? was born, born to live the perfect life, the one that we could not live. Born to live a life that was completely unstained by sin. Was born to die on a cross in our place. And in so doing, to be the ransom for us, for our sin. He was born 
to, to miraculously leave the tomb empty three days later, right? And in doing that, he proved that Satan's sin and death are absolutely no match for him. But he was also born to ascend into heaven after the resurrection, to take his seat, his rightful seat, at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. I have the words of the Apostles' Creed kind of rolling through my head as I'm thinking. And as he does that, as he takes that rightful seat at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, he didn't just leave us here alone. He left us here with a promise of salvation. Left us here with a promise of eternity. That is the promise of our sacrificial Savior, our our eternal King, our perfect High Priest, that we might live with Him and be with Him for all of eternity if we trust in him, repent, believe in him, confess our sins, right? That's the promise of the gospel. This is what the Christmas season is all about. It's celebrating Jesus as our our savior, our king, our priest. If we had more time, our prophet. There were so many titles for Jesus throughout the scriptures. And the reality is, it's not like we should only celebrate this um, in the Christmas season, right? This should be what we celebrate every Sunday, if not every day as believers. When you think about those titles, though, for Jesus, um, Savior, King, uh, Priest, these are titles that I think sometimes have a tendency to roll off our tongue without a lot of meaning. We get used to using those words for him. Now, first of all, I think it's easy to comprehend Jesus as our Savior, right? I think that's the easiest one for us. Uh, Most of the good preaching that we hear, most of the good Christian literature that we read, if it's good, it centers around our need for a Savior and centers around the person of Jesus as our Savior. But how often do we actually think deeply about Jesus as our King or Jesus as our priest? This is why we started last week by looking at Jesus as our eternal king. And I kind of want to recap that with you for a few moments to set the table for us before we dive into Hebrews. So a brief recap of Jesus as our eternal king. When we, when we looked at this last week, we, we began in Luke chapter 1, right? And we're looking at the angel's declaration of the coming king, Jesus. He's coming into the world through Mary's virgin womb. And as the angel was making that declaration to Mary, we saw that he actually connected the coming baby Jesus to another king. That other king's name was? David. David. Starts with a D. David. Very good. He connected this coming baby king Jesus to another king named David and his entire family tree, right? The bloodline. And immediately following that, we saw Mary. She, she, she sang a song. Um, a song of joy, a song of magnification. And in that song, as Mary's singing it, she remembers God's covenant promises to Abraham. So we thought about that for a few minutes. And then we got to thinking, I wonder what everybody in town would be saying, remember? Since we don't have Facebook and social media posts or newspapers from that day, We looked at what Zechariah said, because Zechariah was somebody in town who had something to say about this. And what Zechariah did was he he painted, I think, what I said to me as like a prophetic collage, right? A, A frame full of pictures 
about the baby Jesus. And in that frame full of pictures, he, he, he gave us these different images. And, and one was the family of King David. Uh, one was the prophets. Another one was God's covenant promises. Another one was Abraham. All of that in the same picture. And what Zechariah was doing in that collage is he's just simply pointing us back to eons, it seems like. Years of Old Testament story and prophecy. And so we did what we should do, which is to jump back to the Old Testament, right? And we, we took a walk through some of that history of God's covenant promises to both David and Abraham. And we started in 2 Samuel chapter 7, if you remember. That's where God promised King David that his family and his throne is going to last forever, despite the broken, sinful man that David was. His throne, his family is going to last forever because God is going to put an eternal king from David's family on that throne in the future. I think I said last week, too, that, that if you, you think about yourself in David's shoes, being the man that David was, it would have caused him to wonder about what kind of eternal king would sit on that throne. A few years later, David writes Psalm 110. So we went to Psalm 110 and we took a look at that. And in that psalm, in Psalm 110, God reveals to David that that future eternal king is going to be like another king way back in Israel's history, and that dude's name was Melchizedek. So we jumped all the way back to that, right? And that's back to the beginning of the Bible. Genesis, which means beginning. Genesis 14, and we met that man, Melchizedek. And what we learned about Melchizedek is that he was a mysterious king. He was a mysterious priest who had actually met up with Abraham shortly after he had defeated his enemies, all these other kings, and rescued his nephew Lot from them. So right into the midst of, a, of an episode in the entire story that focuses on redemption and rescuing what's been stolen and lost and taken, right into that micro-episode of the entire story of redemption, in walks this king named Melchizedek, a king and a priest. Absolutely fascinating story. It's a beautiful story. In case I've lost you in the midst of the recap um, in any way, I want to point out what I think is kind of the essence of what we're studying. The essence of what we're studying is this. Over the course of a few thousand years, God begins by orchestrating that meeting between Abraham and Melchizedek. And, and then a few years later, right, many years later, Moses... He uh, receives all these instructions for priests and kings, and he writes them down in the midst of the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy, but only after he writes Genesis, which includes that story of Melchizedek. And then many years later after that, even David then receives that promise from God regarding this eternal king. He's going to come from his own bloodline, Right? And then still, even many years later after that, David realizes that that eternal king who was planned from eternity past is going to be like Melchizedek from way back over here in Genesis. And then many years later, even once again, Mary and Zechariah realize that her baby, the one that's been proclaimed by the angel, this, this one that's been promised in the past and, and planned in the eternity, 
This baby is going to be that eternal king, fulfilled in the present in her womb, in a miraculous way, because it's her virgin womb, right? And the question I think we concluded with last week was simply this. Is there really anything in your life that this eternal king does not have a handle on? I recognize when it comes to applying things we learn, that that's a very simplistic question. And it leads us to a place where we just simply say, well, in light of all this material, the answer is no. There's, there's nothing that God doesn't have a handle on. That there's no detail of my life that he missed. And he knows the numbers of the hairs on my head, so he knows and he gets it. And there's nothing he doesn't have a handle on. So the answer is that, right? The question is, what do you do with that answer? Mm, love the Christmas season or hate it. Um, you might feel lonely in the Christmas season uh, for, for different reasons. You might, might feel the stress of the season, right, at times. Um, those, all those things may be true, and then, and then some. There is one thing that I know, and there's one thing I think we know after doing this study. We know, but it's hard to believe and hard to put into action. It's hard to trust. The one thing we know that we learned from last week is that Jesus is our eternal king. And we have Jesus as our eternal king who was planned from before the foundations of the world. He was promised throughout centuries of Israel's history. He was born in the person of Jesus Christ, right, through, through this little unmarried virgin teenage girl named Mary. This eternal king, Jesus, he, he's absolutely sovereign. He's absolutely good. And he can absolutely be trusted even when you and I don't understand the details of our lives. And, and he can absolutely be trusted, especially when you and I have a difficult time trusting him. That's where we landed last week. Jesus is your eternal king. He can be trusted in. Maybe one of the last questions there is, where are you struggling to trust him at? And prayerfully asking God, help me to trust you with these details of my life and my story in this season, knowing that you are the eternal king. But he's not just your eternal king, right? You've been hearing me say he's also your perfect high priest. If what David wrote in Psalm 110 is true, and I believe it to be true, that Jesus is going to be our eternal king after the order of Melchizedek, then Jesus is also going to be your perfect high priest because Melchizedek was also a priest. But there is a problem, I think, uh, with this image of Jesus as our priest. And you'll, you'll see it uh, on the screen here in just a moment when, when you think about the images of priests, okay? Uh, the, the, these images are far removed from us, most of us, in, in many different ways, right? It's hard to connect and hard to relate. When you think of priests, you think of a Catholic priest, and here we are in a Protestant, uh, you know, kind of non-denominational-ish Baptist-ish church planting. I mean, there's lots of ishes for us, so we're, we're a mutt. <laughs> That's what we are. We're a mutt. <laughs> you, look at, you look at these, and it's like, oh, I, it, it's hard to connect. You either got the Catholic priest, or, or you got, there you got the Jewish 
the high priest, that's an image of what the high priest would look like and all the clothing. And I'll tell you, if we had time to do an in-depth study on all the clothing and the articles and how it all points to Jesus, it's, it's a fantastic study. It's beautiful. I encourage you to uh, find a way to a resource. If you want one, uh, hook up with me, and I'll, I'll get you some resources that you could look at that would be really good. But when we think of these images, they're far removed from us. We're not Jewish, right? We, we, I don't show up on Sunday mornings wearing that. Um, and I guarantee you there's probably nothing about plaid that points to Jesus, I don't think. So <laughs> these images are far removed from us. It's hard for us to connect. So the question is, where do you turn? Where do you turn in the Bible to get a clear picture of Jesus as our perfect high priest? And the place you go is Hebrews. And that, that's why we're looking at a portion of Hebrews this morning. Now, now Hebrews does in a broad sense, teach us that Jesus is our perfect high priest. Not a broad sense, but in a very detailed sense is a better way to say it. Uh, there's, there's a significant portion of Hebrews that does deal with that. And if you're not familiar with the book of Hebrews, I want you to be able to get the main message and have that in your mind before we dive into the text. Um, the main message of the book of Hebrews is this. Jesus is what? Better. Jesus is better. It's a very simple message, and it's, 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 it's strewn all throughout Hebrews. Now, Hebrews is very complex when you read it, and sometimes fascinatingly confusing. <laughs> um, but it's very, very good, because if you can keep that in your mind, that Jesus is better, then the sections of the book kind of look like this, okay? Jesus is better than the angels in the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, right? It's the law. He's better than the angels in the Torah, chapters 1 through 2. He's better than Moses and the promised land. What? Chapters 3 through 4. He's better than the priests. He's, and in fact, he's not just better than the old Levitical priests. He's actually better than Melchizedek. Oh my. These are big statements, chapters 5 through 7. And, and just a side note, I, I actually came into sermon prep this week thinking that we would cover all of chapters 5 through 7 and then quickly found that there's no way we could do that. Um, We'll be here for days. Days. We're probably going to be here for days anyways if I don't just keep moving. Jesus is better than the priests and Melchizedek. He's better than the old sacrificial system. He's better than the old covenant. And here's the thing. Because he's better, all throughout Hebrews, this is what you learn. Because Jesus is better than all of that, you can certainly trust him through the darkest of times. That's the simple message of Hebrews that is strewn throughout it. He's better. He's better. He's better. He's better. Therefore, you can trust him through the darkest of times, through the difficulty of times, through the hardest things you'll ever walk through. He can be trusted. So, as I said, there's far too much text in Hebrews, um, beginning at the end of 4, all the way through the end of 7. In fact, you can get into some of chapter 8 with this. So there's too much there. Um, so we're just going to focus on the verses I read earlier. Um, and, and my prayer is that God would help us to kind of understand some of it, as well as to make a little bit of application on our way through some of it. And at the end of it, hopefully we just see Jesus as our great high priest and that we're able to trust him even more, that he is right here and, and present in our times of need. And can I just say this on the front end, because I don't forget to say it, um, that there is no place of perfection or cleanliness this side of heaven that you can get to where you don't need Jesus as your high priest. You don't have to be a person who maybe struggles with something that seems as horrific as pornography um, to be the only person that needs Jesus. 
Right? You, can just, you can be a person who simply just struggles with some thoughts in your head of evil intent towards somebody else because they got your order at McDonald's wrong. And the thing is, is you need Jesus just as much as this other person. We are equally as dirty and filthy because of our sin, but equally able to receive and have Jesus, our high priest, walk right next to us and help us through those difficulties, those weaknesses. And he's promised, he's promised to never leave your side. And that's a promise that, that you and I can hang on to. So let's, let's look at it, okay? Verses 14 and 15 of chapter 4 in Hebrews that we read a little bit ago. In those verses, what, what you're going to see is you're going to see that Jesus, our high priest, he sympathizes with us, right? It's the first thing we learn. Notice how Hebrews starts out. It says this, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect not just in some circumstances, but in every respect, every circumstance, in every possible way, has been tempted as we are yet without sin. That's a fascinating and encouraging uh, way to start out this introduction of Jesus as our perfect high priest, okay? In these uh, few short verses, in these two, this little introduction that the author makes, we learn that Jesus simply sympathizes with us in our struggle against sin. Why? Because he has also faced the same temptation of sin, but he did it without failing. This is a fascinating reminder to us. It's meant to be good news for weary souls. Jesus knows that your struggle with sin is real. And he sympathizes with you. Do you believe that? I'm in a place where I'm like, God, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. I believe that. I have a really hard time believing that. cool thing is it's not just that he knows that your your struggle with sin is real it's not just that he sympathizes with you in that but in his sympathy what he did is it says that he entered the very presence of god as he passed through the heavens and this is very much like the image of a priest passing through the, 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 the dark back curtain of the temple into the holiest of holies, the place that nobody else could go, right into the very presence of God. And with that image in our minds, what, what we can do is we can hold fast to our confession of Christ. We, we confess Him as our Savior, our King, and our perfect High Priest. And knowing that He went into that place on our behalf, knowing that, and that He sympathizes with you and with me, helps us to hold fast to that confession of Jesus. Why? Because He's our perfect High Priest. He sympathizes with us. And He's right there in the very presence of God. Second thing we notice is that Jesus, our high priest, invites us into God's presence with him. So it's not just that he went through the heavens and through the curtain and into God's holiest of holy presence. And he's like calling us up on the cell phone. He's like, yo, don't get any closer. I'm behind the curtain. I'm in God's presence. It's all good. Keep your distance. You might die. It's not that kind of a picture. 
the actual picture is that because Jesus went there, you and I get to go there too. Think about it. How do you respond to knowing that Jesus, your high priest, he sympathizes with your daily struggle against sin? A friend of mine told me, was a friend of mine that struggled with some really deep, dark sins, right? We say that, and when you say deep, dark sins, once again, sin is sin. <laughs> so I even need to be careful about how I categorize those things in my mind because sin is sin. A friend of mine struggled with some deep, dark sin. <laughs> and <laughs> we were talking, and he said, I- I've experienced this kind of freedom for this long from that. Because in one moment, as I was struggling with that sin, the Holy Spirit let me know that Jesus is right here with you. As you are beginning to run headlong off, the, off that cliff towards your sin, Jesus is right there. He hasn't left you. And he just said that realization that the presence of Jesus was right there really helped to set me free from that pattern. Sympathizes daily struggle against sin. How do you respond to that knowledge and that image? Now, Hebrews tells us how to respond. That's the, the good thing about Scripture is it typically tells us how we are to respond. Now, it doesn't always come around and say, hey, <clears throat> Matthew, this is the way you are to respond. <laughs> but you can see it. Verse 16 says, let us then with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. So what do you do when you find out that Jesus sympathizes with you so well as a perfect high priest? With confidence, you draw near. It's not like you're a dirty kid who was outside getting all covered up in all the dirt, right? And you come inside and your mom's like, whoa, stop right there. Go clean your butt up before you get any closer to me. It's not that picture, right? The picture here is that Jesus knows, and he sympathizes. He doesn't hold you at arm's length because of your sin. He says, hey, come here. Because the only place for you to get clean is to be in the presence of a gracious and merciful Father. What do we usually do? <laughs> we come in the house, we're like, oh, yep, Mom's told me for years I can't come close until I get clean, which is, you know, that's, that's a good thing anyways, just so my kids know. You're filthy and you come in like, go get clean first. <laughs> I'm not God. Anyways, back on track. <laughs> back on track. No, come give me a hug. I don't care. You know? What we usually do is we have this tendency to go, I, I got to get myself clean first. <laughs> and the point here is, the invitation is, I sympathize with you, Jesus says. I get it. So you can, with all confidence... You don't have to come up to me with your, with your head down like you're humiliated. or It's confidence. You walk into the presence of your perfect high priest with your eyes looking right at his as he looks right in yours. And, 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 the, and the conversation between him and you in that moment is simply, hey, I love you. I don't care how filthy you are. Come right in. This is the way you respond to knowing that your perfect high priest sympathizes with you. With confidence, you draw near to the throne of grace that you may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus, as your perfect high priest, he doesn't just merely feel bad for you. Oftentimes when we think about sympathy, we think of maybe 
You know when you're pulling into Walmart and you see the homeless guy? And the first question in your mind is, is he really homeless? If I give him any money, what's he going to spend it on? And maybe you don't think this way. Maybe this is just my brokenness, okay? <laughs> this is the way I think. Um, sometimes I think, man, I got 20 bucks. I want to give it to this guy. But I, I feel pity probably, right, is what you might feel. I had a friend of mine that I met with middle of this last week. He's getting ready to be a missionary over to South Africa to fight human trafficking and sex trafficking in some really phenomenal ways. I can't tell the whole story. But he told me this story about reading a book by Timothy Keller. Um, paragraph in the book basically says, hey, you know what? When you see that person that you kind of take pity on, you feel bad for, you feel maybe sympathy for. The reason you're feeling that is because that person is a reflection of what's really deep down inside your soul. And when, man, when he told me that, I thought, wow. He was explaining that that paragraph is what drew him into this kind of ministry uh, to fight against human sex trafficking. He said, I didn't grow up rough. I didn't grow up tough. I can, my family's good. It wasn't broken. Um, but that image, that that kind of brokenness is still down inside of me. I need Jesus, my, my perfect high priest, to walk through that with me. I need to draw close with confidence. Jesus doesn't just merely feel bad for you from a distance. Um, his sympathy literally is meant to be personally felt like a really good doctor with good bedside manner. It's his sympathy, his bedside manner, if you will. It's intended to invite you to draw near to him for the grace and the mercy that you so desperately need to get you through the darkness of your sin-infected heart. It's, it's, it's constantly soaking in a bathtub full of mercy and grace. That is what washes you clean. And the only way you get into that bathtub is in the presence of Jesus as he sympathizes with you and dumps more mercy and more grace and more mercy and more grace and more mercy and more grace, which I have always said are the two sides of the coin of God's love. Without his mercy, you don't have his love. Without his grace, you don't have his love. But with both of them, you have a perfect and complete love where he has loved you. In his mercy, he has withheld what you and I deserve. In his grace, he's given you and I what we don't deserve. That's his perfect love for us. It's good news, isn't it? Isn't that good news? It's good news to know that, that we are not alone in our struggle against sin and that Jesus actually invites us into the perfect presence of our gracious and merciful Father. It's, and it's not just that He does this. It's not just that Jesus sympathizes with us. That's important, right? And it's not just that He invites us to draw near to Him. And that's important too. But think about this. He's actually the one who acts as the mediator between you and your Heavenly Father and me and my Heavenly Father. He's the one who actually makes it possible for us to be in our Father's presence full of peace. No more anxiety, no more fear, no more stress about being in the perfect presence of our Father. Jesus makes that possible because he is our mediator. It's the last thing we see about Jesus being our perfect high priest. 
in these, in these 10 verses of chapter 5, um, what the text does and what the author of Hebrew does, Hebrews does is describes the Old Testament high priests and then he simply compares them to Jesus as the what? The better high priest, right? Because that's the message of Hebrews. So if, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 5, Hebrews says this. It explains that every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. So, so he gets in between in that relationship between men and father. He gets in between there as a mediator. And he does that to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Right? That's what the priest does. The high priests in, in Israel's history, they, they had a very serious job. It was a very serious responsibility. They mediated between sinful men and women and a perfect father in heaven. And they did that simply by offering all sorts of bloody sacrifices so that sinful humanity could then draw close to God by faith in his redeeming promises. Right? That's what's been happening historically in Israel since a long time ago. It's the priests do. Now, the thing about those priests in Israel's history is that they were sinful men, right? They weren't perfect. That's why Hebrews 5, 2, and 3 tells us that a high priest in, in Israel was able to deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. Now, how do you like that? If you're in the congregation that day and somebody reads Hebrews, and the priest does, okay? And says, this is what my job is. Um, and because I'm sinful, I'm able to deal gently with you ignorant, wayward people. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Sometimes the way that, you know, I, I just, I don't know, for me it cracks me up because I think about the author, and I think about people, <laughs> and I think about me preaching, and I'm like, ah, ignorant, wayward. Well, here's the great thing. <laughs> he can deal gently with ignorant, wayward people since he himself is beset with weakness. Uh, parentheses, he himself is ignorant and wayward at times, okay? Um, and because of this, the text says, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. So here what we're learning is that Israel's priests, all throughout the past, and it's a pattern that had been set for Israel as a community, all of those priests were able to handle other sinful humans who were under their care, and they did it with gentleness. Why? Because they knew that they were sinful too. They knew that they weren't perfect. And in fact, that's where problems began, is either A, when the people began to say, oh, holier than thou most, I don't know, pontiff, whatever. I don't know what the t titles are, but, you know, begin to elevate that person and almost treat them like they're the Messiah somehow, right? Like, you are, you can't even be touched. You're so holy in, in regards to the priest. Or the priest himself would elevate himself that way. And that's where problems would rise. Like, Hey guys, like, I've arrived. I got this repentance thing down. Y'all follow me on that journey. It's going to be great. Yeah. It sounds good. Maybe. I'm pretty soon you begin to realize there's a lot of pride and arrogance in that. <laughs> a lot of hypocrisy and Phariseeism that comes out of that, right? That's, that's what began to happen. This point of uh, these sinful priests leading other sinful humans being mediators for them has constantly driven home as they offered sacrifices for their own sins before ministering to the needs of the people. The principle there is this. God must work in a priest before he can work through a priest. 
And the same is true for all of us in any ministry situation. God must work in you before he can work through you. And if you attempt to have him work through you and not allow him to work in you, it will be very disastrous for you and those that you try to serve. You can't give what you don't have, right? Now, here's the thing. Once you think about that, you get to this point where you go, hey, I don't think any man in his right mind is ever going to seek that kind of a job, okay? Number one, the pay ain't that great, and so on and so forth. And I got to wear these funny robes. (laughs) No, actually, it's far more. This is a very serious job, right? It's a very heavy job. So there's no man in his right mind is ever going to seek that kind of a role because of the seriousness and the weightiness of the job. Only a man who is called by God could walk that road of being a sinful priest among a sinful people. This is why I think verse 4 of chapter 5 says, No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God just as Aaron was. Now, Aaron, the story of Aaron is fascinating. We could spend a lot of time here. But if you go back and you look at Aaron, the first high priest, and you look at, you look at the story in Leviticus 8 through 10, that, that's where you'd want to go. It'll give you a good visual. What you'll see there, though, is a very heavy responsibility. And you'll also see a bunch of personal risk in taking this role and being called to it, being ordained in that kind of ministry. As a high priest, Aaron watched two of his sons die basically on the day he was ordained because of their disobedience, his son's disobedience to God in their priestly roles. And furthermore, another thing to recognize is that Aaron could not publicly, Aaron and his other two sons could not publicly grieve the loss of those two sons. Like that kind of of, of a calling seems way too much to bear to me for, for, for a normal human being. You might also think about this in regards to Aaron Aaron was the one who fashioned the golden calf that I think, if I remember the story right, Moses had him grind it up into gold dust and then made the offending parties drink it. (coughs) That's church discipline gone wild, if you ask me. I think I've always said that. So the high priest was responsible for carrying this heavy weight of this calling to be a mediator between sinful humans and a perfect God. These priests, they, they could not do their job flippantly. And they certainly could not do their job without continuing in the process of repentance and obedience on the daily. That's the weight of of being a priest, according to the old Levitical system. So so the question is, are you beginning to kind of feel that? Can Can you see the weight and the role of a high priest, what Jesus is about to fulfill? It's no light task. Like, Can you imagine having someone in your life who is willing to help you bear the burden of your sin? Now take that another notch deeper. Someone who's going to listen to you confess your deepest, darkest sins and, and, and look you in the eye while doing it. Not being hidden uh, in, you know, by a veil in between you in a confession box. Not that kind of priest. The kind of priest, the kind of person who is a very good friend, who knows you, knows your name, knows your life, knows your struggles, and in a lit up room will sit in front of you and say, tell me, tell me, tell me. Let me hear it. Let me carry this burden with you. (coughs) Tell me about your sin. 
not only that, but somebody who would look at you and say, you can tell me about it because I already know. You know that's, and I'm here and I'm with you. He's willing to help you bear the burden of your sin. Listen to you confess your, your sin, every detail of it. While not, not disconnecting relationally, not becoming angry with you, not becoming disappointed with you, but able to sympathize with you and say, hey, I hear you. I hear every dark piece inside of you. And I not only sympathize with you, but I love you. I love you. And nothing can change that. You know what that's like? That was the job of the Old Testament priest. Was to build that bridge. As someone who would say to you, I love you just like God loves you. Nothing can change my love for you. I'm walking this road of repentance and obedience with you. You're not alone in this. You're not, you're not, you're not alone. This is what sin does. Sin separates, right? And it not only separates us from God, but it separates us from others that we need nourishment from. And that's what the priest did, was provided that. That's exactly what the priests in the Old Testament were called to do. But I want you to remember this. You got that feeling of weight. You got that feeling of, man, somebody physically that would sit with me and say, I love you no matter what I see in you. That sounds pretty great, doesn't it? But the message of Hebrews is what? Jesus is better than that. Like, you've grown up in this system where you have somebody that will sit in front of you and say, I love you, right? Like they'll, they'll, they know your name. I love you, Charity, no matter what you did. Or I love you, Michael. It doesn't matter what well, matters, but I love you. It doesn't change my love for you. They grew up with that. And the good priests that they had did that well. That's what Hebrews is telling us. So you have that emotional feeling now. You can visualize whatever priests you've had. For our setting, you might visualize whatever pastors you've had or elders or leaders or friends that have sat in that space with you, who have helped you bear the burden of that weight of sin. And yet, Hebrews teaches us that that's great, isn't it? Jesus is better. This is why Hebrews chapter 5, verses 5-6 through six says this. It says that Jesus did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says, oh, here's the thing. If, if the father looks at Jesus and says, you are my son, and you have trusted in Jesus, what does that make you? Huh? Yeah. It makes you Jesus' brother. So what does that make you? Let's keep going. What does that make you? It makes you a son of God. Or a daughter of God. Not with a capital S, like the son of God. Okay, just making sure we're not preaching heresy. Okay, y'all. <laughs> if you think you're that, we'll crucify afterwards and see if you leave the tomb empty. <laughs> I am absolutely convinced my struggle with sin and your struggle with sin centers around our ability to understand our identity in Jesus. That because he is the son of God, then by faith, you and I are also sons and daughters of God. And that means that we have the same benefits that have been given to him have now been given to us. 
You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So here Melchizedek comes and visits for Christmas. Right? <laughs> the reason that Jesus is a better high priest is that he was a better mediator between God and man. There's no other high priest in all of Israel's history that could ever lay claim to being a perfect mediator other than Jesus, okay? The only other priest in Israel's history that actually even appeared to be better than Aaron or to be better than the Levitical priest that you see in Exodus through Deuteronomy, the only other one that could have been any better is Melchizedek. And everybody would have agreed, yep, Melchizedek was probably better because he came before, Right? He came before Aaron. He came before the whole system was put in place. Secondly, Abraham actually tied to him, so that would make Melchizedek better than the rest of the priests. And he also had no genealogical record. We don't know where he came from, and we don't have a record of his death, so we don't think he ever died. So he just kind of like lives on forever. He rode off into the sunset like those cowboy movies where the, cow, the good cowboy never dies, right? And then he shows up for sequels number five, six, and seven, and he just he won't die. Although he can barely stay on the horse. <laughs> you know, this is Melchizedek. He was great. That was the historical story. <laughs> Jesus is better. He's better than Melchizedek because he is the Son of God, capital S. And he gives us perfect access to God the Father. The truth about Jesus is this his sympathy is perfect. My sympathy with you is not perfect. And all of you would know there are days when you might sit down with me where I am completely distracted or I'm frustrated because I'm like, really, you're struggling with that again. Oh, right. I'm, I'm not perfect. My sympathy is not. But Jesus' sympathy is perfect. What you see in a friend of yours or in a pastor that you've walked with or another leader, when you see them on their best days, Jesus is better than that. His sympathy is perfect. His invitation into God's presence, it's transformative. I always like to say to my friends and to anybody that I get to lead as a pastor, I always like to say, hey, my words are never going to change you. You don't need to hear from me. You need to hear from God. Now, the uniqueness is I get to, like, hopefully God speaks through me, right? And it's the same for anybody else in any kind of different relationship. You're just hoping, like, God, would you speak through me? Because nobody needs to hear from Joe. Three o'clock in the morning, I'm no different than the rest of you, you know? Or at 7 o'clock in the morning when I haven't had my coffee. We're all the same, right? <coughs> Jesus' invitation is transformative. His mediation produces perfect peace. How does Jesus do this? How does he give us perfect access to God the Father? Well, our, our final verses, 7 through 10, say that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son... He learned obedience through what he suffered. This does not mean that Jesus went from um, disobedient to learning obedience. The learned obedience just simply means that it was complete. Okay? It was completed. He started off as obedient. He ended obedient. Complete. That's the meaning of it. It's just our English renditions make it sound kind of weird. Uh, through what he suffered. And being made perfect, that's another phrase that's really hard to deal with too, like somehow somebody made him perfect. Now again, go back to the original languages, it really just simply means that he was completely perfect. It's a way of using the same words to build on the same thing, to say he was better, really, because he was perfect, because he was complete. 
Because of that, he became, in verse 9, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So simple message is Jesus is better than Melchizedek simply because he was literally appointed by God as the capital S, son of God, to be the perfect and eternal high priest who would offer the perfect and the complete, the unblemished, unbroken, untainted sacrifice for anyone who would trust in him through his broken body, his shed blood at the cross of Calvary. Jesus simply did, as our high priest, he did what no other high priest could do, Melchizedek included. And he did it as he offered himself as the perfect payment, the ransom for our sin, right? And then in the midst of that, he invites us to draw near to his throne of grace, for the grace and the mercy, the bath that we need. And he makes that possible so that we might survive this fight against the presence and the power of indwelling sin. And he does that as he continuously mediates between us and our Heavenly Father daily. Do you think about the role of a mediator? Right? A mediator gets in between two people who are at war with each other, basically, and tries to establish peace between those two enemies. And that's exactly what Jesus has done as our perfect high priest. He has mediated at the cross, and he continues to speak to his Father on our behalf. And he mediates that peace between us and God. With him as our perfect high priest, what you and I learn is that God is simply not absent in our struggle. He's not in the back room. Just hiding because he's ashamed of you. He's not uninvolved in your struggle. He's not ignorant of your struggle. He's not unsympathetic towards you in your struggle. On the contrary, God is for you. God is with you. That's the beauty of this season we've seen about Emmanuel, God with us. But turn that around and make it personal. God is with you. God is constantly trying to fix you through the work of our perfect high priest, Jesus. He sympathizes with us. He invites us into his Father's presence. And not only that, but he provides a pathway, an actual clear pathway into his Father's presence. And he does it because he's the crucified, risen, and returning Savior, mediator, perfect high priest. And doesn't that make you kind of want to study the book of Hebrews a little more? Okay, good. So I want to leave you with a quick note on that before we wrap this up. I hope, I pray, I beg, I'd love to coerce if I could, okay? I would want you to please go home today and from here until next Sunday, read the rest of this chunk of Hebrews and digest it deeply and write down questions you have and write down things you know, and ask God to make it clear to you. Because if you were to study the rest of this section from, from Hebrews 4, 14, down through the end of probably somewhere in chapter 8, because it talks about the new covenant, and it's beautiful. God, the whole, the, the way it's all put together is beautiful. What you'll see is, you'll see next, you'll see a real sharp warning. Um, in the very next few verses after today's text, you'll see a sharp warning against ignoring the message of this book. Don't ignore this. Be detrimental to you if you ignore it, right? Um, and you would also learn that Jesus is the anchor uh, for your hope, the anchor of, of your soul. Uh, I love that passage uh, personally. I think I have it tattooed right about here, just so you know. Love to show it to you. Um, it, it's a reminder to me of a season in my life where I needed Jesus. Be reminded that Jesus is the, the anchor of my soul, the hope. 
Uh, if you were to continue studying, you'd learn how Melchizedek was definitely a great king and priest. Chapter 7 has more to say about him than we've already learned from the Genesis account. It's really fascinating. But you'd also learn more about how Jesus is definitely a better king and a better priest than Melchizedek. And because he's a better king and a better priest, he oversees a better covenant than the old covenant. So I just encourage you, study that out and, and, and look at it between now and next Sunday. I want to conclude this way. Um, but the question was, is there anything in your life that this eternal king and perfect high priest does not have a handle on, right? The question simply was, what detail of your life has he missed? The question was, where are you struggling to believe that God is not only in control of all those things, but now where are you struggling to believe that he's present with you in your time of need? What sin is so deep and dark and tough in your life that you would think that in those moments Jesus is not right there with you, sympathizing and inviting and mediating so that you might receive the mercy and the grace that you need to be washed clean and to be in relationship with your Father? Whatever that is, I pray that, that God has spoken through his word and is encouraging you to just run right back to him that you'd find your satisfaction in him, that if, if you're here or if you're hearing this message and you're not following him, or maybe you even grew up in church and you think you've been following him, but you go, you know what? I have zero passion for God. Maybe that's an indication of how cold your heart is. And, and, and I will just hope that you would take that to him and be refreshed and be renewed and be reinvigorated and maybe even be saved if you're not already. That's my prayer. That's my hope. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being our perfect high priest and our eternal king. Thank you for this season that we have every year to be reminded that you came in the form of a humble baby in a manger, born of a young couple in a very miraculous way to fulfill thousands of years of story and prophecy and promises so you might not only rule our lives, but so that you might walk with us through our lives as our priest and king. Pray that you would help us um, in our closing moments to draw close to you as you draw near to us. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.